to the Methods Cafe podcast. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Ashley Mathias. And Ashley, I think I pronounced it correctly this time, did I? You did. Thank you. (laughs) Ashley is a scholar of communication and her work brings together cultural studies, media studies and visual rhetorical criticism through the lens of feminist theory. And this is to explore the material effects of cultural production and consumption online. Her research areas include the digital cultures of the alt-right and other groups, with a goal of better understanding how gendered logics are used to promote racial hate, discrimination and violence. We are also very lucky to uh, have Ashley here as a colleague and a fellow member of our multidisciplinary cyber threats research centre at Swansea University. Welcome Ashley, officially. Thank you for having me, Sarah. So excited to be here. uh, It's great to talk to you. So, um, In particular, in this episode, we would like to discuss a paper you authored, which is entitled uh, Shield Maidens of Whiteness, Alt-Materialism and Women Recruitment for the Far Alt-Right. It's actually alt-maternalism, which it's it's totally okay. (laughs) I actually I had a professor when I was uh, writing the paper get it. (laughs) always say all new maternalism for one of my pieces. And I'm like, no, or it's new maternalism, not new materialism. See, even I'm doing it, those things. So maternalism. Maternalism. About motherhood. Yes, yes. And I knew that, you know, I'm just obsessed with materialism as well. Anyway, so the paper foc- focuses on the discourse of a prominent far right woman. She's a Russian-American woman called Lana Lokteff. Is that correct? Yeah. So Lokteff, um, uh, her far-right and conspiracists, white supremacist content has reached a fairly global audience. So this paper is uh, focusing on, I suppose, her narrative. Can you tell us a little bit about the methodology that you use for the paper? And I guess any constraints that guided those choices? How did you come to, to choose those methods? I'm going to step up a little tier in in sort of how I think about project design very quickly and say I was trained to think at multiple levels of project design because my my coursework around this incorporated social scientists I'm a, I'm in the humanities right so we were bridging different areas so we had to think at different levels so the paradigmatic right the methodological and methods are sort of the three areas to think about in terms of what ultimately become methods. And paradigms really are sort of guiding frameworks. Um, and for me, that's one of them is intersectionality theory um, as a paradigm. And it guides the way I sort of ask questions and select topics um, and think about research design. So for this project, right, that paradigm shapes questions around how does gender intersect with other structures of power like race and whiteness and women's narratives about their role and far-right extremism. So I'm looking at how those intersections work together to produce outcomes. And then methodologically, my preference is that I tend to favor what are called grounded approaches to reading and analyzing text. And grounded approaches basically seek to develop analysis through allowing themes to emerge from the text itself, rather than imposing sort of a predetermined model and looking for a correspondence afterward. So in particular for this project, a grounded approach I think better highlights the extant text, right? Keeping true to the speaker or author's words. And in fact, when I presented the materials at conference, I used video clips directly from the speech in place of reading quotations. So the audience could hear her intonation, could could hear what she was saying to sort of match that against my arguments, right? It allows for very sort of an interpretive reading that has to remain true to a text in a specific kind of way. 
Um, and then lastly, for this paper, and generally speaking, I use interpretive methods as someone coming from the humanities, that is using theory and historical contextual facts to perform my analysis. So in this project, it's a particularly interesting example because I created the concept of discursive composites, which is a sort of blend of rhetorical and cultural discourse analysis to understand how far-right women narrate their participation to both explain it and to recruit. So how did this work? So first they did a ton of reading of primary and secondary sources. Primary sources were texts from far-right women, influencers on public social media platforms, their video blogs and things. Secondary sources included news stories, research, and historical contextual information. Um, and then I analyzed this, this specific speech from Lana Loftaf, and she gave that at an international conference about identitarian ideas. And I really wanted to assess how she dealt rhetorically with the issue of women's roles. So to do this, I transcribed the speech from YouTube, right? I sat there and listened to it and typed it out and listened to it again and listened to it again to make sure I was typing it correctly. You have to think about grammar and punctuation when doing that. Then I hand-coded the text, right? A, a single speech is not big enough really to use a sort of computational method or system to code. I've even hand-coded up to like 500 pages before I don't suggest that. But there are, there are actual tools you can use to code if you have larger volume data. But when you're coding qualitatively, you're reading whole pieces of text and looking through at the narratives. And I love my, my color-coded Sharpie highlighters because that's what I use when I hand code text. I love them. And so once you do that, you can start to see the colors on the page and see themes that are emerging. And I was specifically looking for themes related to gender, right? I, that included talk about women, talk about men, talk about homophobia, right? All things related to gender to then see what was in the text and how it fit together. Because I wanted to see what themes, which I call discursive strands in the text, how they shaped the argument, which ultimately becomes what I call the discursive composite, right? I identify three themes that come together to be the framework for the talk. So Ultimately, my hope was to be able to utilize the discursive composite as a model for future application, right? So that's not grounded. So, you know, you can leverage grounded theory to get to not grounded models, which is actually a very profitable way to do the two together. So once the themes and their relationship was apparent, I interpreted their meaning both directly and in the historical context of extremist thought and racism in the U.S., because I'm looking at U.S. context. And interpretation is very much in cultural studies, media studies, and visual rhetorical studies about context and reference. So for context in this project, I use historical texts about women's participation in extremist and racial movements, along with particularly Black feminist texts and Black women's speeches and writings historically about white women's participation in racist extremism. And I also use a good chunk of contemporary news sources. So I think the second part was constraints and considerations. So <laughs> yeah, I know yeah, I'm on yeah. it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. No, um, no, no. I wanted to be very concrete for people. Yeah, um, no, this has been very helpful. And I think I, I would just highlight a couple of things because it matches really well with some of the things we've been discussing in our research methods class. And of course, this podcast is, you know, to some extent directed at our students. And, you know, you've just provided a really good example of using a qualitative kind of grounded theory based approach to actually develop a theoretical model of you know of 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 how this kind of narrative is constructed which you can then potentially apply in future research to you know to other individuals to other groups and you can start to build a picture really of how this these movements are kind of uh, constructing their own um, ideas and 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 that I think that's it's so useful to have a concrete example you know for our students and someone doing that 
Um, we've been talking a lot about, you know, what makes a, a research question, a research pro project interesting. And, uh, you know, obviously developing a theoretical model like that, you know, that is academically, you know, that's super interesting. So, yeah, no, thank, thank you for that. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I mean, so what's really important about models grounded in or using grounded theory developed that way is they're rooted in the thing itself, not a, a model from outside that you're trying to make fit so that when you get outlier data, when you get things that don't fit later, that can lead to other really interesting explorations of why didn't it work and what happened. So I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But constraints and considerations that, that I have to think about, right? So I do my work manually. I cannot assess really high volumes or big data in the same way, um, at least not very quickly right, which is difficult in social media context, right? That's why computational approaches and quantitative approaches are used quite often. But I will say it's intrinsically important to do non-computational studies that are deep dives, close readings, ethnographies, and qualitative research about online extremism and online digital cultures. And a proof of this is when I first presented these findings at a Voxball conference, there was a computational scientist there on the same panel, and he had found the same themes in his work on Stormfront, which is a Canadian right-wing website that I found in my work. So our respective papers inadvertently, but very happily corroborated each other's findings, thus strengthening both our claims, right? So the two can be used in ways that support the work from an academic standpoint and from an understanding standpoint. So it's really important to think about on in online research when a more deep dive is needed and when a sort of broader picture is needed because that can help you determine methods as well. Like we have someone at Sidetrack that does both close reading and computation. So the second sort of big issue in deciding is deciding sort of what to keep in and what to exclude in terms of data and analysis. And with online research, there's often huge amounts of data to sift through. So for this paper, even though I had read many and seen many pieces of media, I was looking at a lot of data. I chose to focus on an exemplar case and speech for this, particularly because I was trying to build into that discursive composite, right? So someone um, sort of sort of master speech that, that gave me all the parts, right? Because other videos would give me a single part, but not all of it. So you can do that. You can choose to write about one part of a project or a larger summary of the project, and you can use those things to cross-check each other to make sure that you're replicating your findings or that the findings are replicable. And then the third is the ethics of online research. So Online research ethics are, are fairly murky. It's in some places, there's very strong ethical review in other places like in the US, in the US institution I came from, I wasn't working with human subjects specifically, I wasn't interviewing people. So I didn't have to pass institutional review, right? I obviously talked to my department, but I didn't have to pass a formal review because they focus on human subjects research. So you have to do a lot of thinking about what you're comfortable with, even if it's ethically acceptable according to your discipline, what are you comfortable with? So I favor working on well-known public figures on public platforms as an ethical measure in my work. And if you think about that, right, some of the types of issues is while technically a Facebook group can be public, right, you might want to ask yourself, do the members of this group understand or expect their discussion and their media to be used by research as a public communication? Is it ethical to just lurk there and see what they're saying? 
um, without providing them informed consent? Is it safe for the researcher then to provide informed consent if it's an extremist or criminal online community, right? So there's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, and a lot of people who do textual research tend to favor this like public, clearly public platform, clearly public person sort of discourse because it helps us navigate that. That doesn't make that the best answer. It's an ongoing discussion is more what I would say. Um, and then fourth, in online extremism research, things move pretty quickly. In online research general, right? Online life moves quickly. So speed to publication can often be an influencing factor, especially if you're working on sort of questions around prevention or countering. It's at least a big factor in choosing how to do the research and project design and then what outlet to put it with. So those are also things to think about because like for me, my research can take a lot longer because it's manual. So I have to think about, is this topic something where I need to maybe do a shorter piece on a blog post suggesting an answer before I publish an academic piece because it's important. So those yeah. are some main considerations. And Yeah, yeah, brilliant. I think some of the points you touched on there are going to be super useful for our students again. One thing you mentioned about kind of choosing, I guess, the best possible data to answer your question, and you've got all of this data online, and you're going to focus on, you know, the data that will help you the most in answering the question. And that's a theme that's come through in, in uh, multiple of these uh, methods cafes. So it's a recurring uh, theme here. And um, and I think the this tip you've just given us to of, of focusing, you know, if, you, if you're going to do online research and particularly if you're going to research, you know, extremist controversial groups, you know, the idea of focusing on the, the well-known figures, or perhaps even if it is a group, their official outlets, rather than perhaps what people are commenting back on their posts. You know, there is a choice there to be made about whether to harvest everything, including all the comments, <laughs> or just the official the official communications. And that, I think, uh, I hadn't thought about that from an ethical perspective. I think that's going to be very helpful, because I know some of our students are thinking of doing similar things, yeah. Well, and I've done, so in prior work, I have done commentary responses to like a posting before. And and I think it's okay to do that, but then you have a different set of considerations. How do you represent even the handles, right? People could be harmed potentially if someone knows their handle on the platform. Um, another sort of debate is I, I actually, I've seen papers come out that reference this paper instead of referencing the primary source with the argument that they don't want to send people to the primary source, right? So there's there's some complicated tensions between sort of normal academic practice and how online research, particularly for potentially problematic things, works and that are still being negotiated. So my argument would be, you need to be reflective about what you're doing and why and transparent about how you've done it and consider people online as people the same way you would if they were offline. Um, so so they have to be afforded those sort of protections, right? You know, it's just because it's virtual space doesn't mean it's not community. And and so that's one of the arguments, like I don't do in-place community work, except I kind of do. Um, yeah, yeah. And the digital space makes that uh, tendentious is the word I'm looking for. Right. I thought we'd talk a little bit about the, I suppose, the, the results and takeaways from your paper. So the next question is um, essentially the, the paper problematizes this this at least uh, assumed tension between 
for, for women in the far right movements who on the one hand they they participate they're visible they're leaders in the movement and on the other hand and perhaps uh, this is an assumption but anyway they are part of a movement that is characterized as far as i understand it by misogyny and kind of very traditional notions of women's role in society so how is this tension addressed in the far right discourse, uh, and particularly in this case? And how do what strategies do they use to actually recruit women uh, and resolve this tension? Sure. So this is like one of the really interesting complexities I found in the research, which was initially spurred by articles, news articles about some far right women influencers complaining about misogyny they were experiencing from far right men online, and sort of the wider response to that, those complaints was like, well, it's a patriarchal misogynist culture. Why are you surprised this is happening? For me, though, I wanted to understand what they expected to happen, right? If this was their complaint, why, given their general anti-feminism, they would risk making claims about misogyny and how they were narrating the ideology around their roles. For this issue, the in-depth speech I examined, right, is really important because she's speaking to a room full of men at this Identitarian Ideas Conference about women's roles, but also says that there are women watching remotely from home because they're ostensibly too afraid to go out in public because you know society demonizes them. So in this case, Lockhart has to weave together arguments that both catalyze women's engagement, but don't alienate the men that she's speaking to in person. So it's a very sort of unique set of parameters. So as we think about how she's articulating what I've referred to as the narrow path between action and submission, she's trying to guide women through. And, and that guidance is, is one of the ways she's trying to recruit women, is to say, you can do this. There are sort of two angles of importance within that question that I push on in the paper and my other work. First is the sort of lasting perception in some research and policy that women are not active participants in extremism because they're passive women. And second is the issue of understanding how the women themselves are framing their experience and agency, which are two places we weren't really looking. So for the first aspect, the issue is related to how people perceive or understand active versus passive behavior related to extremism, which is often defined, at least in the U.S. context that I researched, through criminal and violent behavior. The women engaged in far-right extremism do not narrate their engagement or agency in that way. Many specifically claim themselves as agentic actors taking on important roles that they view as active, but they're roles that they also view as appropriate to their gender. So they see themselves as active proponents. We just don't understand them that way because of our sort of rules and categories. So this is a, a, a disjuncture that um, narrators and recruiters can use. Again, that difference between ideal and practice, right? And then sort of for the second part, I'm gonna put on my communication scholar hat a little bit more and specifically my rhetorician hat and say that the tension I describe in the paper exists in the speech, right? It exists in the speech itself. So that would be what, what Lloyd Bitzer, a very famous rhetorician calls the rhetorical situation, which is the event or the cause for the need of the rhetoric or speech at all. So you can infer the context, like why the speech is necessary based on the text of the speech because it's meant to persuade around the issue. And so because she's talking about that, that tension exists somewhere somehow for women, right? At least that's the argument of the rhetoricians, right? So the thematics of the text let us know that that exists. And she's really trying to build a scaffolding for how women can exist in these movements properly and how and why, when they should be active, when they should be more traditional in their roles and what the sort of framework for that is. 
So the, the big thematic where she bolsters this is this idea, what I call mythic, women of myth and legend, right? The shield maidens, the Valkyries. So there's a whole thematic around these women. In, in the UK context, often they use Boudicca as the example, right? Yes. Uh, and the implication is that in exceptional times that call for exceptional measures, women need to stand up and they need to be part of this, but that they realize this is fleeting. It's not permanent. They're not seeking to lead or step outside of their naturally feminine roles in any sort of ongoing way, but simply to stop an immediate threat. So the women of myth and legend use rhetorically position action as one, an urgency in relation to extreme threat, two, temporary but appropriate via historical mythological example, role for women, and three, as a practice of of exemplary women, which works to destabilize women's active roles as an internal threat to male power and leadership. Women shouldn't really lead, but we have to step up because the threat is that big. But what we really want is, you know, to go back home and be mothers. We're being forced into this, but we will step up and take care of our race. Yeah, yeah. So that's sort of how that part of the thrust is held together. It's also sold along very traditional lines, which we could talk about a little bit more, but like motherhood and the special face of motherhood and how women are valued. The third discursive strand is like Western civilization is men's ultimate romantic gesture. So there's some romanticism and some sentimentalism embedded in that, that that creates this sort of framework. Why should you be in the movement? Because you need to take care of future white children. And don't you really want to be a mother? And and this is your real liberation to be a mother. Of course, along with that, right, you should want to protect Western civilization because this is the most romantic thing white men can give you. Look how much they value you. They've created and built this for you. And third, if we have to step up to protect it, we will because that's what women of the past have done, but we know that that's only temporary. Yeah. Oh, well, that's fascinating and very clear. Thank you for that. Um, another thing the paper highlights um, is the connection between far and alt-right discourse and narratives of non-extremist women's movements. And my question is whether it is more accurate to say that the far alt-right ideology has entered the mainstream, or is it that these movements are increasingly good at leveraging the mainstream discourse and and, and worries, you know, femininity, motherhood, uh, to their own ends? (laughs) So to promote white supremacy, Islamophobia, etc. I would say this is not necessarily new. If you look back at the histories of women's participation in particular, the sort of discursive strategy of engaging mainstream discourses is present all the way back to the foundations of slavery in the US and and economy, right? It's part of the capitalist argument in comparing uh, non-slave women to white women around citizenship. Very good book by Lori Marish about that. But this is why alt-maternalism and romanticism as discursive framings are used. They're part of this very long tradition of women using their positions as mothers and notions of sentimental duties of care toward children from the state and from men as a framework for engaging in public political speech. So that certainly in the West and in the US. So sort of three main aspects impact the current presentation. One is the shift to culture wars approach, right? So the idea that culture is upstream from politics. So changing politics by changing culture, which is what we see in, in the online space all the time. This is a broader shift that started maybe several decades ago. Second is the opportunistic connections. Far-right narrators are opportunistic. So they'll jump on on board of things that are disruptive to politics and culture. So think about the anti-critical race theory and the anti-wokeism movement in the US, which by the way is also now moving to the UK and Europe. 
um, which was created by a right-wing political operative. And it's a place where racism can be injected without seeming like racism into the mainstream discourse, right? Or, or into normative sociopolitical contexts. And then third is the affordances and sort of capabilities available through digital and social media technologies. And those are actually now imbricated with news technologies. So like the, the circulation of this happens very fast, goes very far and is embedded through sort of trust networks. Um, and this is particularly true of the influencer models of engagement, right? Influencer here is short for influencer marketing. It's a marketing tactic that was used by businesses. So it's a business model for circulating media through this sort of my friend agrees with this through parasocial relationships, through trust networks. And so by design, this model makes information, opinions, beliefs, and affinities primary aspects of consumption, right? And the difference here is it's just the product, whatever its specific form is, hate. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and then I would say digital cultures sort of also infiltrate and leverage what I refer to as borderland cultures, not borderline, but borderland. So places they touch in other digital cultures online, right? So this is where my work on Tradwives comes from. Tradwives share certain kinds of ideological affinities around gender and anti-feminism that make it a very productive place where far-right extremists, particularly women influencers, because it's a woman's culture, can go in and sanitize the extreme racial component through a sort of unmarked whiteness that exists in that community, right? So they'll talk all about tradition, but all the pictures will be of white women and white children. So it seems like the ideas become deracialized. This is just tradition. And that's very useful, particularly for far-right extremists who have been deplatformed from mainstream platforms because they can go in on a Tradwife blog or a Tradwife podcast mm -hmm. and engage. And, and so we know that there are connections. I talk about that in, in Shield Maidens, but people have talked about it much more extensively, um, the interconnections of them. So they may not recruit everyone. And I certainly wouldn't argue that Tradwife culture as a whole is extremist. It is certainly, I would think, radical. And it has quite a few of its own flavors, but it is a productive recruiting and sort of resource ground. Yeah, yeah. Could you just say what, uh, explain what Tradwife means, just in case any sure. of Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Tradwife is an online hashtag. The culture started as a hashtag culture. And Trad stands for traditional. So traditional wife. Um, and this is like a, an anti sort of, it's not fully anti-modernist in the sense of like neo-Nazi anti-modernity, um, but it has this like return to the golden past. A lot of times you'll see 1950s imagery or pioneer imagery. Um, so it has some really strong ideological resonances mm -hmm. with some of the far right narratives. And it's been around online for a while. So there's like multiple strands. There's religious based strands, both Christian evangelical and Catholic. There's red pill strands, Julia Ebner writes about those that focus on sexual market value and how to portray yourself in ways that men want, right? There's there's different flavors. There's um, And then there's this sort of extremist strand because extremist influencers um, have, haven't been engaging with it for a long time. And I want to say this actually broke 2020, February 2020, like the big story. There's a, a British trad wave that became very famous in a Guardian article. So it's pretty easy to find in the UK context. And it, it sort of blends this idea of national tradition which makes inroads for nationalism in yeah. interesting ways yeah yeah brilliant this has been a fantastic discussion yeah i think our students are going to take a lot away from this and um, i certainly have be, been scribbling away <laughs> some notes i'm going to reread your paper now that we've had this chance actually um 
but I did have one final question, uh, which is uh, whether you've got any top tips for our students or anyone else out there who may be starting out in in research in I suppose our students focus on social legal research, but I suppose any sort of uh, social science research. Yeah. Sure. So I would say first, it's sort of at the basis of all research, and I tell this to my own students, focus on the projects that are interesting to you, not necessarily what you think is academically interesting. And I'll tell you the reasons for this in a minute. But like for me, it's things that upset me, usually things that I find un unjust or unfair or, or wrong. So that's like an indicator for me of what I might want to follow up on. But other people, it's things that they love and are passionate about, right? But Focus on what's interesting to you. Because the question of interesting is a framing and approach issue, not a topical issue. And you'll be more successful doing solid research and being engaged over time if you care about and have a motivation to study what you're working on. And that's really true for darker subject matter, like extremism, crime, or violence. Um, if it's something you want to do for a long time, you need to have a reason to want to do it. So always be guided in your research by, by what you're passionate about. And the rest of it will you know, you can help fall into place by finding the right mentors, the right collaborators and different things. Um, second, I would say, take time to do reflective work in designing and executing your research, sort of what I talked about earlier. Really think through the whys, hows and whos of what you're doing and what you hope to achieve. And this includes ethical research and researcher safety. Sort of the third, and I only, there's only four. So the third one is be curious, especially when something seems to not work. What data resists, or like when your data resists a model or an analysis doesn't come out like you hypothesize, be curious. Outliers can actually be the basis for really groundbreaking work. If not, you're you're still learning from the process, even if it doesn't work. So like it doesn't work every time, and sometimes that's good too. Um, an outcome is is an outcome, even if it's not a good one. Um, and then pace yourself. There's a mountain of work for everyone to do and a long path ahead, and you really want to make time to ensure that your mental health and well-being. Uh, are good and you want to take breaks and rejuvenate because you'll come back to the work better. This is sort of like what they're showing in these test cases on the four-day work week. That little bit of extra time makes you productive in your working time. Apply that because it can be really easy to become immersed and even material you disagree with that is intended to be really highly persuasive like propaganda or like recruiting material or manifestos. Like you need, a, you need time away from it um, to be okay. So take that time and then it may seem like you're doing less work, but really you're you're giving yourself the capacity to be more productive and creative in less time. So don't confuse motion with progress, I guess, would be the shorthand. Amazing. So be passionate, reflective, curious, and self-caring. That's beautiful. I, I, I want that on a poster. T-shirt. I think you need a t-shirt for Sandra. <laughs> yes. uh, thank you, Ashley, so much. This has been great, uh, great conversation. Great to chat to you. And I will pop the uh, link to your paper in the show notes so people can uh, read it in full. And perhaps uh, you on social media, can people follow you? I am. I'm, I'm on Twitter. Um, I want to say it's it should be at AA underscore Matthias, I think, or just AA Matthias. I'll find it and put it on, on, on the notes as well. So people Terrible. can... I don't know my own Twitter handle anymore. <laughs> Uh, how Twitter has fallen from grace. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Bye. It's 
actually Matthias. Matthias. As my partner says, a very bad American pronunciation of a good German name. <laughs> Perhaps I should start again. I'm going to start again. <laughs>